This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Greetings and welcome to EWTN's Open Line Monday. Father John Tregilio is in the house, as you heard previously. This is a uh, pre-recorded mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls. But if you'd uh, like to be part of a future mailbag program, feel free to send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. And put something like Monday or Father John in the subject line, and we'll get it to the appropriate location. I'm Jack Williams. Rich Jesse is our celebrity producer today for this mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. And your host from the Mount, Mount St. Mary Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, is Father John Tregilio, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Terrific, thank you. This mailbag's getting heavy on my shoulder, so let's start emptying it out, huh? Okay. Ronald writes in, Someone asked if angels can share the divine nature. I think you missed the question. St. Peter says that we can partake of the divine nature through our union with Christ. Are angels non-participants in this divinization? Wow, very theological question. <laughs> I might use that on my next exam for the seminary. <laughs> yeah, because um, it, it's a good question because um, St. John Chrysostom talks about the divinization of, of humanity because of the hypostatic union of Christ. You have the human nature and divine nature united uh, to the one divine person. But metaphysically speaking, there's angelic nature, there's divine nature, and then there's human nature. Now, we share qualities in that in human nature and angelic nature, there's an intellect and a will. The angelic intellect, though, is completely infused, whereas you and I, we learn things by abstraction. We both have a free will, and God, in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in the Trinity, has a divine intellect and a divine will, but his intellect is infinite as well as his will is omnipotent. We share in so far as that Jesus uh, shares our human nature. In one sense, we could, you could say that we were raised above the level of the angels because we can look at Jesus and see our brother because uh, he shares our human nature. Whereas angels, Jesus never took on an angelic nature. Um, so in a spiritual level, we sort of got bumped up above uh, them because of, of that. But metaphysically speaking, they still are more powerful, more intelligent, more subtle, more beautiful uh, than we are, but uh, it doesn't go to their heads, so to speak. Uh, So philosophically, metaphysically, we want to keep those three distinct, but at a spiritual level, we certainly want to say that, you know, and that's what one theologian speculated is why uh, Lucifer and a third of the angels rebelled is that uh, God proposed to them that he was going to create human beings, they would fall, and he would redeem them by sending his son who would take on a human nature. And Lucifer and the other angels said to themselves, well, they're below us, so you're insulting our nature by becoming one of them and then raising them above us. It would be like a human being getting bent out of shape that, you know, God became an amoeba or something like that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you got to make those little distinctions there uh, between spiritual spirituality and uh, philosophically speaking. Uh, Brian writes in, hello, I've been in the process of searching for new employment. I've been presented with an opportunity to work at a facility that builds mi- missiles for the government. It would be a good opportunity for me, but when I think about where those missiles will end up, I'm not so sure. What is the Catholic teaching on this kind of employment? Okay, well, that's a a fair question. You're not forbidden 
to work at any military complex, whether it's the building of, of missiles or ammunition, uh, because, first of all, uh, it's not even considered material cooperation evil, uh, because if they're used for a defensive purpose, um, you know, to protect the, the country from uh, invaders, um, unjust aggressors, that's a legitimate cause. And you're hopefully working, and, you know, we even changed the name of, it used to be the Department of War, now it's the Department of Defense, because you're, you're working to defend the, the nation. So if they're used immorally, that wasn't your decision to do that. Now, working on something that is intrinsically evil would be, and again, there's lots of good arguments for the um, moral use, defensively speaking, to deter um, unjust aggression. But if you're working on some biological a weaponry, there's where you, I would say you would need to step back because, you know, if they're ever used or misused, even though we were using them from a defensive standpoint, uh, sort of a, a deterrent issue, uh, you could make a, a cause for that, but they're just, it's just too uh, easily uh, misused. And, um, you know, I, I think we were trying to get rid of as many stockpiles as we were. But working in a, in a missile factory, particularly here in the United States, uh, where I would be a little bit more circumspect is if you're in Russia or China, um, they're not necessarily only thinking and planning on using those defensively. They also have uh, a game plan for offensive use. But here in the States, I don't think you have any uh, reason to, to worry about that. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Kay writes in, I am raised Catholic, then was married in the Methodist Church. My husband is Methodist, and he doesn't want our marriage convalidated in the Catholic Church. Will I be denied confession and communion forever? Uh, no, with this proviso that oh, uh, if your husband refuses to have the marriage convalidated, which means having you and your husband um, make your vows before a priest or deacon with two witnesses, if he refuses, and this is your first marriage for both of you, you can, through the diocese you belong to, the bishop can issue what they call a, a sanatio radice, which is a healing at the root, which is done when one of the persons, uh, typically the non-Catholic, refuses to have their vows uh, done in front of a priest or deacon. So then it has the same effect of a, as a full convalidation, where both of you would be saying your, your vows and, in front of the priest or deacon. So it is a recourse. It, it can be done. If this was your first marriage and his first marriage, you need to speak to a priest or deacon of your parish or call your diocesan tribunal directly. Again, a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. No phone calls today. Timothy would like to know, how do you explain what a mass is to someone who has no Christian background? Ooh, okay. <laughs> well, that's a good one. Um, I would say the mass for us is an unbloody reenactment of Calvary. Uh, it's a reenactment not in the same way as the Civil War guys. You know, I'm here at the seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, and we're only like five, ten miles at the most from Gettysburg, PA. And they do reenactments where they get dressed up as the North and the South, and they do the Battle of Gettysburg and whatnot. Uh, it's a historically accurate, but it's just a representation of what happened long ago. That's not what we believe uh, happens at the Mass. It's not just going through the motions of what Jesus did at the Last Supper, but it's in the Hebrew tradition of actually making the past present and the present connecting to the past and also pointing to the future. So in a sense, at Mass, everyone who's participating there is, in a sense, being put 
into the upper room on Holy Thursday, that first Holy Thursday. And then what Jesus did on Holy Thursday and Good Friday is made present to us at this particular moment. And it's the, you know, the separate consecration of the bread and the separate consecration of the wine into the body and blood of Christ. That separation of body and blood is how we reenact the, the death of Christ because separating body from blood results in death. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose. And that is almost immediately after the priest uh, separately consecrates, Jesus doesn't stay dead. He's risen. And we used to say is one of the moral acclamations that you know, got removed uh, because it wasn't uh, translated. It didn't come from originally from the Latin. It was Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. He's risen. So we don't receive um, dead flesh and blood. We receive the living, resurrected body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So it's more along that line, like the, in the Hebrew or the Jewish religion, uh, the Passover is more than just uh, a reenactment. It's actual participation uh, in what happened for us as Catholic Christians. This is what the Mass is for us. It's a connection, a un- union with Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday all rolled into one. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking any phone calls today. Father John Tregilio is in the house. And Father John, just we got about a minute left here uh, in this segment. And going back to the, to the question about the, uh, the Methodist marrying the Catholic, uh, you know, the, the irregular marriage situations that, that we find people asking questions about frequently, to me, really sort of accentuate the importance and, and the lack, in many cases, of formation prior to marriage. And this is something that, that really should be taken more seriously than I think a lot of us do, huh? Oh, yeah. That's why the, the Catholic Church requires, in many dioceses, a minimum of 9 to 12 months, if not more, of preparation for the sacrament. So we tell people, don't call the church last. Call the church before you make any uh, plans with the caterer and with the, the venue and all the other stuff that they typically do. Because one, you know, you know, we're not guaranteeing any date. And two, we want to see that the couple puts the spiritual before uh, the, the, the physical and, uh, you know, and like you said, you know, pre-cana is not something to get out of. A lot of times couples say, hey, Father, what does it take to get out of pre-cana? I said, go in the pre-cana, get you out of pre-cana. <laughs> Very good. I mean, how long was your pre-cana, Father? Eight years? <laughs> Twelve. I was <laughs> Twelve in years. seminary. There you go. On behalf, well, what am I doing? We'll be back in a minute. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Back to the mailbag we go. Stan would like to know, what can I do to increase my faith? Go. <laughs> okay. Well, um, there's a wonderful um, adage that was in the Baltimore Catechism, why did God make me? God made me to know, love, and serve him in this world, so as to be happy with him in the next. So to increase your faith, the more you know about God, is going to be very helpful. So uh, increasing your knowledge of the faith, reading the catechism, reading uh, sacred scripture, reading commentaries on sacred scripture, lives of the saints, okay, papal encyclicals, and so forth. So reading more, learning more is the first step. 
and then to uh, love God, cer- certainly by uh, showing your love in uh, participating in the sacraments, uh, making holy hours, uh, devotions, and that. And uh, you, those things will help you uh, increase your faith, to know, love, and serve God. And the best way we serve the Lord outside of giving him full public worship is in practicing the, the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. So our faith can be increased by our being more receptive uh, to God's grace. But again, you know, using our intellect, our will, and our heart is what's important. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. From Rome to your home, with news from EWTN's Vatican Bureau, you can watch all the important events from Rome, even if you don't have TV access. Using the latest technology, we've made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See, all delivered directly to your home via live streams. Watch live on EWTN's YouTube, or uh, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, we have an email from John, and he says that he struggles with doubt. Is there any advice that you can give John slash Thomas here? <laughs> uh, well, we all deal with doubt uh, <clears throat> because we're human beings, and our faith is not perfect in this life. So we're always going to have some doubts. Um, like Mother Teresa, she never doubted the existence of God, but she had a period, seven years of desolation, where she doubted that God cared, that he was interested. Now, intellectually, she knew that wasn't the case, but emotionally, she felt that. And it's the same with, you know, our human relationships. Sometimes we we question not that our mom or dad loves us, but we question, do they love me enough? Uh, or do they love my brother or sister more than me? Uh, that's part of the human condition. And so anyone who says they have no doubt whatsoever, I said, well, that's only a singular grace that God could give you. Everybody else is going to have questions. And I think it was uh, uh, Father Benedict Rochelle of Happy Memory uh, coined this phrase, you know, faith doesn't give us the, the ability to, to have all the answers, but to gives us the ability to live with unanswered questions. You know, I find that true in my own life, for sure. I, I sort of kind of reached a tipping point at one point where, you know, I maybe didn't have all the questions that I wanted answered, answered, but there's a tipping point there, at least there was for me, where I reached a point where, while I didn't have the answers to everything I wondered about, I reached a level of confidence that there was an answer there for it if I, you know, needed it at any given moment. Yeah, that's the case, yes. Um, Andrew writes in, what spiritual advice can you give for someone discerning their vocation? Well, um, that's a good question because I'm working here at the seminary. <laughs> Discernment is, is, is a process, so it's not just going to be a one-and-done thing. Um, I felt a calling to the priesthood when I was seven years old, made my first communion. I went right into high school seminary out of grade school. A lot of my colleagues, you know, it was much later, they went into seminary in college or they went to seminary after college or some, you know, there's a fellow here from my diocese, uh, he's... One year older than me, 61, and he'll be ordained a deacon, God willing, uh, in a month or so. Um, so uh, the age is irrelevant. Uh, it's when you start to feel in your heart, especially through prayer, that God is calling you to serve the church uh, through the uh, ministerial priesthood. And that has to be tested. That's why you spend time in the seminary. The faculty and the bishop of your diocese discern themselves, you discern yourself, do you feel called? And then they discern whether there's evidence of a call, that you know you can live 
a life of, of, of holiness, a life of simplicity, a life of celibacy and, and obedience. And then there's that process of asking yourself and in prayer, especially through prayer, um, am I capable of doing this? It's one thing to say, I think God's calling me, but then to ask yourself and others need to verify, do you have what it takes uh, to be a, a priest uh, in, in a church or uh, say a religious, if you're thinking that you're being called to, to religious life. So it's a process of prayer, of study, and also uh, of walking with the Lord. And one of the phrases that we see a lot now in the new documents from Rome for seminaries is accompaniment that uh, the priest formators that work at the seminary, our job is not just to examine you, to observe you, but to walk with you and to guide you in that way to say, okay, here's areas you need to improve upon so that God willing, if you do get ordained to the priesthood, you know, we want you to be the best that you can be. And, you know, kind of continuing that thought, talk a little bit about the notion that, well, it's not a notion, it's a fact, that that it's not just for priests and religious. Everybody has a vocation, and everybody should discern and ask God what that vocation for them is, shouldn't they? Exactly. It's not, you know, sometimes people think it's by default, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> guys don't become priests because they can't become husbands, you know. Uh, I, when I joined the seminary, one of my relatives said, "Why wow, you don't like girls? I said, no, that's not the case <laughs> at all. I said, I certainly do like girls, and uh, I've not joined the seminary because, you know, I got turned down by my girlfriend. Um, and, and neither should, you know, uh, someone get married because, well, I got... I, Seminary didn't work out, so now I'm going to be a, a husband, okay? Uh, there's voca- different vocations uh, in the life of a person. We've got uh, marriage, which is certainly um, a holy estate, which a lot of people are called to. We've got the priesthood. We have religious life. We have also, also have the single state. So Vatican II talks about the universal call to holiness, that everyone's called to be a saint, as Mother Angelica said. We're all called to be great saints. Don't miss the opportunity. If you're called to be a saint, you're called to be a saint through what we call a vocation, a calling. Uh, one, so one calling is to the priesthood, one's to the religious life, one's to marriage, and one's single life. So whatever calling God is calling you to, whatever life, he's going to give you all the grace you need. So you have to see that as a means of sanctification. So it's not just the monks, the nuns, the priests uh, who have an opportunity, everybody all the baptized are called to live a life of holiness, and your vocation will be the means by which you achieve that. And that's what we tell couples when they're getting married. You're doing this together. You're both to sanctify each other as husband and wife. You know, and we often pray for an increase. I pray every day for an increase in vocations to the priesthood and the consecrated life. And and talk a little bit about it. It really kind of goes hand in hand with what you just said, that that there is no shortage of vocations to the priesthood. There is a shortage of those that are being answered, huh? Yes, and I like to use the analogy, it's not that God's not calling enough people to the priesthood and religious life, it's that a lot of people have too much earwax, wax of the world in their ears, and they need to get a little irrigation going on in there, (laughs) because, uh, you know, you can't hear God calling you if, one, you don't shut up and listen in prayer, and two, you got to pay attention. So instead of just thinking about, you know, what's in it for me, say, well, maybe God's calling me to do something beyond what I myself would directly, you know, it's not enough to say, oh, yeah, I'd like to be a priest. No, that's not the criteria. Do what i like to be a priest is, is God calling me to the priesthood, and do I think I could actually do it? And then I will find happiness in serving God as opposed to saying, oh, yeah, that's something I would like to do. 
you know, I, I wanted to be a chemist, too, as a priest and teach chemistry and math again in university. But, uh, you know, that, that wasn't part of God's plan. You know, I remember when our son, our oldest son, was a was a small child, and my late wife Susie asked him if he ever thought about being a priest, and his eyes lit up, and he said, oh, yeah, I'd love to break the big one. <laughs> my brothers never would let me forget that when we were, I was in grade school, I practiced being a priest, and I would give them sermons, that, which they didn't like, and then I even took up a collection, and, and my brother ratted on me and told my dad I took his, his allowance away. <laughs> Paula would like to know, if a marriage has to be consummated to be valid, how were Mary and Joseph really married? Okay, well, it's not that it has to be consummated to be valid, okay? Uh, it has to be uh, cons- um, consummated for it to be binding until uh, death, okay? Uh, it's still valid if, you know, it's it's uh, it's just that, uh, what do they call, rotum and non consumanum is if the marriage was ratified because they both gave uh, willing, free consent, but if they didn't consummate the marriage, uh, the Holy Father himself has the ability to dissolve that under certain circumstances. Um, so, But it is a valid, it's just not a perpetual uh, bond. And uh, Mary and Joseph were certainly uh, validly and uh, you know, legally married, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't a sacrament, though, because it had not yet been instituted as a sacrament. It was a natural uh, estate of marriage. Uh, Eli wants to know if baptism forgives all your sins. All your sins that you've ever committed up until that point uh, are washed away in baptism. The only proviso is that uh, you are validly baptized, that the, the priest or deacon says the proper words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and either by immersion or infusion or aspersion, uh, that the head gets uh, wet properly. Uh, then all the sins you've committed up until that, from the day you were born up until that point, are washed away. Does that mean that you'll never sin again? Absolutely not. <laughs> That's why we have a sacrament of confession. And in fact, when we have the converts who come into the church at the Easter Vigil, uh, we remind them, not that very day, but <laughs> soon afterwards, <laughs> uh, that we're available for confession on every Saturday, and you can even go during the week if you need to. Uh, and believe it or not, people actually will come to confession soon after they're baptized because they realize you know, it's it's not easy to stay in the state of grace uh, uh, perpetually. Yeah, and and in days gone by, uh, people, uh, I think the Emperor Constantine comes to mind, would put uh, baptism off sometimes until they were on their deathbed uh, for fear of sinning after the fact before we really understood the sacrament of reconciliation, huh? Oh, yeah. Plus, I mean, he also was honest enough to realize that once he got baptized, he'd have to clean up his act. So he postponed <laughs> baptism until he was old and decrepit. And when you're the emperor, you could do that because people are always making sure that you're okay. But when you're uh, Joe Schmo from uh, Buffalo and no one's going to be checking your, your uh, blood pressure every day, uh, it's, you're taking a chance, a roll of the dice, that you're going to live long enough to be able to repent and, and be baptized. So we, we advise people not to do the Constantinian method. <laughs> and 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 to be clear, um, you know there there is a certain amount of intentionality on the part of the penitent that has to be met for the va- for the baptism to be valid and for all those sins to be forgiven. They can't enter into it willy nilly, not believing it is what it says it is, and get the benefits. Yes, they have to they have to believe that this is going to be real. They have to be sorry, you know, for their sins. 
Um, so if someone goes into being baptized and, you know, let's say they're in an adulterous relationship and they intend to keep that adulterous relationship, well, you know, that's a sin of sacrilege, okay? They're valley baptized, but they're committing the sin of sacrilege because they have no intent of uh, for purpose of amendment. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not going to be taking your phone calls today. But it is, nonetheless, EWTN Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Be sure to check out The Journey Home with Marcus Grodi, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Radio on Sunday night. And you can watch it Monday night at 8 Eastern Time on EWTN Television and hear it on EWTN Radio. This week, Marcus and his guests discuss their personal journeys home back to the Catholic Church. And tonight he's going to talk to Dr. Gavin Ascendon. Uh, that's The Journey Home with Marcus Grodi. Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. That's tonight, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday because Father John Tregilio uh, places his faculty responsibilities above us. We're not we're not too wounded, but we're. Uh, I, I want to get paid. <laughs> <laughs> you do have to eat. There are certain. Yes, <laughs> you are. Uh, you are not pure spirit, as they say. <laughs> so, yes. Yes. Um, Carl writes in. He says, "How do we reconcile?" This is a good question, and this is right in your wheelhouse. How do we reconcile predestination and free will? Okay. Well, there's a Catholic idea of predestination as opposed to the one Calvin came up with. Calvin's predestination was absolute that God predestined some to hell, some to heaven. The Catholic idea of predestination is, is that those who are going to heaven, God is predestined, but he does not in any way impinge on their free will. Now, that's a mystery because the free will is, is always intact, and yet you ask yourself, well, how could he infallibly ensure that this happens without affecting their free will? But it happens. That's what we firmly believe, that no one's free will is coerced. Otherwise, it's not a moral act. If your will is any way um, adversely affected, then you know it, it's not what we call a moral act. And therefore, it has to be remained in, in, in the sense uh, inviolable. Yet, God does, never predestines anyone to hell. Now, there was a great controversy among the Dominicans and the, and the uh, Jesuits on this idea of uh, God's predestination of of the uh, predestined or the of the uh, those who are saved and in heaven, the Dominican school was to try to recognize or reaffirm God's uh, omniscience that you know He knows everything, so uh, He knows who's going to be saved. Therefore, you know it's an easy uh, deal. Whereas you know, whether it's because people, um, you know, is God's power, His omnipotence, or His omniscience. And the Pope had to settle the matter by saying, look, either one's fine, but you can't condemn the other uh, position. So the Church never took a firm stance on the Molinists or the Bonnethians, as, as they, would call, they were called, or the Dominicans or Jesuit school. But there is an idea that those that God has chosen specifically for heaven will go to heaven, but he never chooses that someone goes to hell. People choose hell by themselves. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. No phone calls today. We're emptying out the mailbag, and Patrice sent us an email, 
and wants to know, where can I find in the Bible that Mary was taken body and soul into heaven? <laughs> uh, well, you look in the book of Revelation, all right, or the Apocalypse, as it's sometimes called, uh, in chapter 12 there, and it talks about there appearing in the sky uh, a great sign, the woman clothed with the sun on her head, a crown of 12 stars and the moon beneath her feet. This woman is up in the sky, okay? Uh, that is uh, interpreted as Mary being up uh, in, in the heavens. Now, the actual act of her assumption is not in sacred scripture, but there are other things that are not in sacred scripture either, because even St. John tells us in his gospel, if everything Jesus said and did were written down in scripture, there wouldn't be enough room in the world for all the books. So even John uh, implies, explicitly I should say, says that not everything is it's not sola scriptura because we also have sacred tradition. And part of the sacred tradition is that you know, at some point Mary, time on earth ended and she was taken up to heaven. And that was solemnly defined and declared in 1950 by Pope Pius XII in his ex cathedra statement. So the dogma of Mary's assumption, all right, is based on scripture, but also sacred uh, tradition. So when someone says, well, show me where it says that in the Bible, I go back and say, well, you show me in the Bible where the word Bible exists. We call the, this book the Bible, but the Bible itself never calls itself the Bible. The table of contents are not in the Bible. The publisher puts that in there. The chapter and verse were not part of sacred scripture. Uh, an English archbishop uh, penned those in there for us, which makes it very convenient. So when you see John 3.15, you know, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> So you can, if it's solo scriptura, you're, you're, you're limiting yourself to only half of, of what's going on. Not to mention, what would the first century Christians have followed? Exactly. <laughs> while, the, while the New Testament scriptures were still being written. Um, it's a mailbag edition of Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. Um, speaking of the scriptures, Mark would like to know why we do not adhere to rules and laws in Leviticus anymore. <laughs> Uh, well, because we're in a new dispensation, we're in the new covenant. Uh, you know, the word covenant and testament are interchangeable. So the old covenant, the Old Testament, uh, applied up until the time of Christ. And Jesus came, he ratified the old, and he established So remember, they had the Council of Jerusalem. There was an argument among the, the, the early Christians and the apostles themselves should new converts who are not Jewish, because the Jewish converts obviously maintain the Mosaic law, the dietary rules, and so forth. What about these, these pagans, these Gentiles, these Greeks and Romans? Should they be circumcised? Should they obey the Mosaic dietary laws, uh, which they never did up to this point because they were pagan? And it was decided the Council of Jerusalem that no, they did not have to become Jewish in order to become Christian. And so even though the early, Christ, the early Christians were predominantly first Jewish, they carried that over. But then when the Temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, you have the, the expulsion of Christians from Judaism. It then became completely autonomous, and there was no longer even the, the uh, inference of uh, obeying the Mosaic Law because it was no longer necessary. Uh, Andrew would like to know, why isn't same-sex marriage allowed in the Catholic Church? It's not allowed for the same reason uh, bigamous uh, marriages are not allowed or incestuous marriages are not allowed. Okay, We're not, talking about, we're not making any moral judgment on the person themselves as a person. We're saying the, the institution of marriage 
as defined by God in the sacred scripture and sacred tradition and Holy Mother Church, is that marriage is a permanent covenant between one man, one woman, which would be faithful, which would be permanent, and God willing, fruitful. So it's not just that same-sex marriage is, is not a sacrament, but neither is, you know, one man and two wives or five wives or whatever or vice versa or same reason why a brother can't marry his, his sister. There's people who, who would want uh, bigamous or incestuous unions, and, you know, just because somebody wants it and thinks there's nothing wrong with it doesn't mean that that's marriage. Marriage is created by God, and the state uh, doesn't define marriage. The, the state is to there to uphold and defend marriage because marriage is the source of the family, and the family is the building block of society, whether it's civil society or ecclesiastical society that we call the church. And we've got, uh, uh, Michelle has written in, and normally we have a one question per customer rule, but on this mailbag edition, we're going to empty it out. We're going to get, this is a dream day for Michelle. We're going to answer all of her questions. Okay. She says, good day, Father Trujillo. I have several questions and hope you can answer them for me. Okay. Number one, and I'll ask them one at a time and let you respond. Okay, good. When there is a vigil mass... Can you replace the vigil mass readings with the daily mass readings? Are the readings interchangeable? Uh, liturgically, you have to keep the readings that are assigned for that day. If you go to a church where the priest or the deacon, whoever is there, uh, did not, let's say you're going for the vigil mass for Sunday and it's a Saturday afternoon and whatever is going on, they decided just to read the daily readings, you do not have to go to Mass again because your obligation was to go to Mass, and you did. You went to the which you perceived to be the Vigil Mass, and if they don't use the right readings, that's the fault of the priest, the celebrant, uh, whoever you know is uh, in charge of that. But liturgically speaking, you know it, it, it has to be what the Church has assigned for that day, and and for Vigil Masses, it's for the the feast, the celebration is for the following day. Um, but I know some, some places, you know, like when Christmas falls on a Sunday and if people go sun, Christmas night, is that for the next day? You know, it, it gets confusing at times. But your obligation as an attendant is, or as a participant is that you go to Mass. Uh, the celebrant and the people planning and the main actors of the Mass, it's their obligation to make sure that the proper prayers and the proper uh, readings are done. Her second question, and I, I'm not sure she worded this exactly the way she wanted to, but I'll, I'll just, you can just cover all aspects of this. All, all right? right. So she said, when the Feast of the Immaculate Conception falls on a Sunday, it is not replaced. Sunday Mass is celebrated. Is it because it falls within the Advent season? What was the feast again? The Immaculate Conception. Yeah, um, because Advent and Lent are pivotal celebrations of preparation for uh, Christmas and Easter. The Immaculate Conception, just like um, another solemnity, like, say, the um, uh, <clears throat> the Annunciation, um, these feast days, in a sense, get bumped through the higher-ranking Christological uh, celebrations of Advent and Lent. And so even like St. Joseph, you know, his day, uh, it's a holy day of obligation uh, in, in, in many places, here in the United States, it's not, but up in Canada, it is. Uh, it gets bumped to the following, like the nearest Monday, um, 
it's only because Advent and Lent have that priority. Uh, of Now, that's not the case, I believe, in the uh, Eastern Catholic tradition. In the Eastern Church, the Byzantine Church, uh, they will keep uh, the Feast of, um, uh, you know, of uh, the Immaculate Conception or of, uh, you know, the Annunciation, even if it falls on Holy Week. In the Latin Rite, we, we do not. Now, if it's outside of those time frames, in ordinary time, then yes, the, you know, a Marian solemnity will take precedence over the Sunday if it's ordinary time. And then her final question is, when a divorce occurs between two Christians, not Roman Catholics, but they want to remarry in the Catholic Church, do they require an annulment by the Church? Okay, if they were divorced in, as Protestants and now want to get married, and, and now they want to uh, become Catholic? Is that the question? I think it's, I think it's, it's a little unclear. <laughs> okay. Why don't you cover both scenarios? If they want to, if they want to marry each other after yes. they've been divorced, or if either one of them wants to marry someone okay. else. All right. The easy, the easy scenario is: let's say you got two baptized Protestants. They were married, um, you know, validly, uh, you know, which in the Protestant tradition could be by almost anyone. Um, and then they get divorced, and then they become Catholic. They do not need to remarry each other if that's what they want to do uh, from an ecclesiastical standpoint. The civil law would make, would make them you know, go through some kind of ceremony. But in terms of, because in the eyes of God and the eyes of the church, that first marriage is still valid and binding. That's why they would need an annulment if they were going to, after they got civilly divorced and wanted to marry someone else uh, and have that marriage recognized by the Catholic Church, then they need a decree of nullity. All right, very good. So we got Michelle taken care of. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We're not taking your phone calls today. We're emptying out the mailbag. Arnold writes in, Why would the devil prompt Judas to turn against Jesus? Didn't he know that Jesus' death saved us? Well, the the devil is the epitome of hubris, all right? Uh, He's full with pride, and it goes right to his head. And so even though um, Jesus' death was salvific for us, it was still a sin for Judas to do, you know, betray Christ. And so the devil looks at the big picture and the little picture. So even though some good uh, flows from things, uh, even when things are are, are done that are not good, uh, he's going to go for the personal guilt aspect of it. So Judas could have said no. He could have also repented. He did neither one. He, did, he didn't say no, and he didn't say, I'm sorry. So he it, it was in, in uh, double jeopardy, so to speak, there. But what happened was that Jesus did die for our sins. So, you know, that was a good thing, but it was not that, you know, it didn't have to be done at the betrayal of Judas. He could have, you know, it could have still been affected another way. I mean, his, his, that was his purpose uh, coming to earth was to die for our sins. But Judas made a free will choice to say, yes, I will betray him. And uh, so that's on his conscience. So the devil is that permission. I mean, he, the fact that he even tempts Jesus in the desert, all right, this is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but his hubris is so great, all right, his audacity, that he'll even tempt someone who can't be tempted. You know, it was interesting. This is something I've never heard. You can tell me if you've heard of this before or, or what you think of it, you know, one way or the other. But a woman called in. Uh, last week on Open Line Tuesday, and she talked about how the Divine Mercy Chaplet 
was very, you know, instrumental in her life, and, and she really relied on it. And she talked about she had a, a, a very troubled, uh, drug-addicted uh, son. And when she would say the Divine Mercy Chaplet, she said she would meditate on what must have been the incredible sorrow of the mother of Judas. That is an interesting thing I'm going to use. <laughs> I'm going to use, if not on Divine Mercy Sunday, at another time I'm going to use that because that's amazing because um, let's say, and it's probably, I mean, it's quite feasible that his mother could have been alive still. Uh, we don't know what his, at what age he was. Jesus was 33. Judas could have been around the same age. But mm-hmm. imagine, you know, the shame, um, the, the sadness in her heart that her son was the reason why Jesus died, um, you know. But also, I mean, you know, we think of uh, what about Pontius Pilate's wife, okay? What about the family of, of uh, Caiaphas, uh, other people who were mm-hmm. participatory uh, in these things? Or We know, you know what Pilate's wife thought. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> and what about the, the wife of the bad thief, okay? Uh, the good thief, we know, at least he goes, <laughs> he, he repents, but what about... Uh, um, justice there yeah. the, the 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 bad thief so that is an interesting thing to ponder is that uh you know sin is never confined to just the one person you know people say well that's a personal sin all sin eventually is communal because we are part of the body of christ and then here's a question that we get from time to time from jeffrey and he says that i understand that we will be judged based on what we know Sometimes this makes me think that I shouldn't evangelize because I'm creating a burden for the person I'm speaking with. That's that's very philosophical, <laughs> uh, and in a sense, that's true. Okay, uh, you know, we learned this in philosophy class. You know, uh, the will can only choose what's known by the intellect. So uh, the more you know, the more responsible you are. But uh, conversely, you don't want to say, "Well, I want to remain as ignorant as possible." Because you're keeping it at a very simplistic level, because the more you know, the freer you are, because you have more to choose from. So that's why, you know, the obligation uh, to evangelize, to spread the news, to teach the faith, is not just so that, you know, we, we say, okay, now these people are morally culpable, but it gives them a better choice to make. Because if you only know A and B, you can only choose A and B. But if you know A through Z, now you've got more choices, but also if you know what's good and what's bad, all right, you're able to choose better because you know the goods that are available and you know the evils that are possible. And then uh, Mary is in conversation with a friend of hers who constantly comes back to her with, I would give a lot more credence to the teachings of the Catholic Church if the hierarchy were not living in luxury. Well, uh, I mean, it's it's a good point, but it's uh, also, in one sense, irrelevant because if somebody is living an opulent life, uh, you know, whether it's morally or immorally done, uh, that's on the onus on the person on the the hierarch himself. Okay, um, he should be living a more uh, a modest, uh, humble life. But even if he's not, the truth is the truth. So someone, uh, you know, as evil or wacky as, I mean, let's say Charlie Manson or Adolf Hitler tells you two plus two equals four, that's right, okay? <laughs> what they speak is the truth, even though they're, uh, av- uh, you know, they're immoral as you could possibly get. Um, but that's not the, the sole criteria. You certainly would prefer 
that the person who speaks the truth, whether it's metaphysical or logical or supernatural truth, that they also coincide with a moral life. So the onus is on you know the, the, the hierarchy to correspond their life with what they say and teach. But for the recipient, our end of it too, is that you know I have to be not concerned the moral state of the person telling me the truth. I need to incorporate the truth as I hear it and learn it and then make sure I conform. So I cannot say, well, that person who told me they're, they're a bad person. But what they told me could be true. And that's what I need to distinguish. I know sometimes people say, well, you know, that, that doctor has bad bedside manner. Well, maybe he does. But if he's the best cancer doctor in the world, you know, you're going to go to him because he's going to know what to do or she's going to know what to do. Um, I know a lot of people say, well, you know, the Catholic Church, you know, we have these bishops and cardinals and whatnot, and they live, you know, uh, decadent lives, whether they're through um, bad, scandalous behavior like we've seen in the past, or as we saw in the Renaissance time, they live very, you know, uh, opulent, uh, hedonistic lives. It has nothing to do with the truth that they were teaching or even the validity of the sacraments they were celebrating. Uh, that's on their conscience. But the beauty of our faith is that the veracity of the, of the truth and the effectiveness, the validity of the sacrament are irrespective of the moral state of the person who's uh, celebrating. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you say that, it reminds me when my late wife Susie was first diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, we were referred to a surgeon, uh, and unfortunately, she she never improved to the point that we were able to avail ourselves of his services. But I remember walking out of that meeting with him, and we were talking on the way out, and I said, you know, he was pompous and a little bit arrogant, and that's quite frankly exactly how I like my surgeons. <laughs> yeah, you want them to do what they're there to do. That's right. That's right. Um, Jennifer writes in, what are the most powerful stories of visions of Mary or the saints? I want to know more about this. Well, there's just so many. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, um, I would say start with, with the, the, the uh, easy ones. All right, uh, like the, the fully approved apparitions of Our Lady, like Lourdes and Fatima, uh, Our Lady and Knock, all the ones that are, have the uh, good housekeeping seal of approval, as we would say. I, I mentioned that the other day to the seminaries didn't know what I was talking about. As you guys, you know, live yeah, in a that, time that, warp Does that here. magazine even exist anymore? <laughs> it, it doesn't. Okay, <laughs> no, well, I don't there you think go. so. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, those are uh, fully approved. But, again, it's private revelation, so you, you are not obligated to accept it because it's not de fide. It's not an article of faith uh, like the Incarnation or the Assumption uh, Matthew Conception and, and, and Papal Infallibility. Those are all things, non-negotiables, that we have to believe. Uh, but the Church officially in, uh, approves of these particular apparitions of Our Lady um, and or the miraculous spell. There's so many of them. There's some others that are questionable. That doesn't mean that they're evil or wrong. They Some of them may be. There may be some deception going on either by the devil or by the person themselves. Or there may just not be enough conclusive evidence. So you can't just presume it's either true or false. It might be something in between. But, uh, you know, start with those those main ones that are easy. Our Lady of Guadalupe, that's, that's a fantastic one. There's more people go to um, Guadalupe Shrine in Mexico than in any other Marian shrine in the world. They, they, I did that for our book, Catholicism for Dummies, so I know it to be true. 
You know, and 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 I think the one of the important points to be made here, and you can agree or disagree with me, is that whether we choose to believe an apparition or private revelation, or whether we choose not to believe a particular private revelation or draw any strength from it, as long as it's within the purview of Holy Mother Church's uh, parameters, it's very important that we not cast dispersions on those who have made the other choice than we have. Absolutely, because, again, if somebody denies a defined article of faith, then that's heresy. But if you say, I choose not to believe something that is optional, that's your choice. So if you don't believe Mary appeared in Lourdes, you're you're free to do that. I personally think she did, but I cannot uh, say, well, you're, you're wrong or you're a heretic because it's not de fide. All right, and I can give you my explanation why I believe it. I can encourage you to go. I can show you all the benefits, but I cannot require you to believe or go. And finally, Richard wants to know, why doesn't the church believe that faith by itself is enough to earn salvation? Because it's never stated that way in, the, in Scripture. Faith alone is not, is not a phrase in Scripture, uh, except St. James has said it is not by faith alone. So the sola fide of Martin Luther was never part of divine revelation, whether sacred scripture or sacred tradition. That's not to say that faith is inconsequential. We say faith and works, faith and works that are motivated, empowered by grace. So it's, again, Pope Benedict Emeritus said it so well. It's not either or, it's both and. So when someone says, well, faith alone was coined by, just like sola scriptura was coined by Martin Luther not by Holy Mother Church. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Absolutely. Benedicta vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, Ephilius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our celebrity producer, Rich Jesse. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it live with Father Wade Menezes tomorrow, talking faith, family, and fellowship. Father uh, Mitch Pack was in the house on Wednesday. Dominican Father Brian Milady joins us on Thursday, and we'll wrap things up this week with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until we get together tomorrow with Father Wade, God bless.